Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And we are in the same room. It's amazing. I, I don't often get to see Alistair. I keep forgetting how big he is. <laughs> I just came into his dressing room. We're in the Royal Albert Hall. He's got shoes about the size of a sofa, I discovered. Uh, size 12. And we're in the Royal Albert Hall because tonight we are performing here on the day of the rail strike. And I've got to say, Rory, it is a bit weird. Let's just be honest. When we first started this thing a few months ago, I don't think either of us thought that by we, December we'd be filling out the Albert Hall. It's a bit bonkers. It's really bonkers. And I know you remember, but when you first approached me about it, I think we were talking about doing a trial run of something like eight or nine episodes. Yeah. And we've now done who knows how many hours. We actually got somebody who claimed that they'd listened to sort of a thousand hours. And they've- I know they are. Yeah, they've got to get out more. They said they'd listen to 11 days worth. <laughs> but I, 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 can, I can give a, uh, a kind of counterpoint to that. You'll find now you're back in, briefly in London, Rory, that as you walk around, you will get people endlessly just saying, love your podcast, love your podcast, because it happens all the time. Uh, Fiona- ha- happened to me in Paris last night. I walked into the Brasserie Leap, okay. right, right there, next to Saint-Germain, yeah. and I walked in and immediately uh, we had somebody uh, at the first table at the door Say, love your podcast, love Alistair Campbell, good luck tomorrow. It's weird, so. isn't it? So let me just put a, a little sort of counterpoint. Fiona and I were w- walking the dog the other day and a woman stopped me and she said, I've really tried hard to listen to your podcast, but I can't do it. You talk too much. You're far too fond of your own opinions and I don't like the other guy anyway. It's very good. And she couldn't even remember my name. I was very sick You were the other guy. <laughs> just so, the other guy, yeah. So, but it was sort of, it just, I think you need those moments to, yeah. to bring it down to her. Now, listen, you've just come in from Paris, but having been in Qatar. Having been in Qatar, yep, for uh, the World Cup, yeah, which uh, is where, the, for, since we last spoke. Now, yeah. first of all, we ha- when we first had the discussion about Qatar and whether the World Cup should be there and all the human rights stuff mm. and gay rights and stuff, to just give me a sense of... One, whether you've had any flack mm-hmm. for being there. Two, what your sense was and what the experience was like. And then, then we'll get on to how you've become an amazing football expert and pundit. Well, thank you, Aston. So I think the first thing that was uh, very striking, I mean, I guess everybody's heard endlessly about the World Cup, but it was a very, very unusual feeling. Um, there weren't crowds in the streets. There wasn't drinking. The matches that I saw, and I saw two of them live, the crowds surrounding me... Um, were often people who were mostly, it seemed to be many of them, migrant workers from Doha. So there were a lot of Filipinos, a lot of Indians, supporting the Portuguese team or whatever. Um, And one of the things that Qataris are actually quite proud of, and maybe this has been in the British press, is that it's a much more diverse audience and many people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford tickets are in those crowds because they're they're given tickets for four or five dollars to get in. Oh, so they were filling the stadiums with local people? Yeah, and a lot of them are local people on low incomes, um, which was very interesting. It, it made for a much more, I think you probably, if you went, you might have felt the atmosphere wasn't quite as intense. But equally, I saw your friend Gary Lineker, and I saw David Dean and Arsene Wenger and all these people. And one of the things they were saying is that they'd been able to see 40 live matches, mm. and they'd never been to a World Cup, but they'd been able to do that because the stadiums were so close to each other. 
So I think if you're really interested in the game as opposed to the kind of fan dimension, I think it was pretty exciting. Mm. And what what about the, the the kind of just around the place? My, I mean, my son Rory was is there has been there, and he said he found it very strange. You didn't outside of the stadiums. You didn't really feel there was a World Cup going on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there was no nobody in the streets. There's no big gathering places. There's no bars open. Um, no, I think that that feels completely different. And the the football, you've you've. Um, would you say you understand the game better now, having watched a few games live? I, I can definitely understand <laughs> much better why you're so enthusiastic for it. I actually, interestingly, the England team's been surprisingly sort of stable from when I was last watching them. So I I do feel that I've got some relationship to them but much less with France. With some of these other teams, I've got no idea. Portugal, I really enjoyed. I saw the 6-1 Portugal victory. Very, very exciting. Big decision. Talk about big, bold decisions, sacking Ronaldo, dropping Ronaldo and putting on the kid who gets a hat trick. It seemed to really work, didn't it? It did, yeah. And I thought it was really vindicated. And then when Ronaldo finally came on, and the whole crowd around me was saying, where's Ronaldo, where's Ronaldo? And actually the entire chant from the stadium was Ronaldo, Ronaldo, Ronaldo. That's all the crowd wanted to do was see Ronaldo. And eventually he came on very belatedly, but he seemed very kind of stiff and slow and awkward. Mm, mm. It's called ageing, Rory. We all, it happens to us all. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I never talk about when I played with Pele and Maradona, but I'm just not the same person that I was then. How old were you when you played with Pele and Maradona? I played with Maradona when I was 49, <laughs> and I was 51 when I played with Pele. <laughs> so and I, was, I wasn't at my best, but I'd never really been at my best. And you sort of, I get the feeling that you, from our, our WhatsApp exchanges, that you... You got very fond of of the Croatians. I did, uh, and of course, we by the time this goes out, we'll know whether Croatia are into their second successive final. But whether they do or they don't get through, the success of Croatian football is an incredible story. The, their first game against Japan was incredibly boring. That was the the uh, you know went. To I th- should we remind people that I said it would be the first game that would go to penalties? Should we remind people do, that you do know a lot about football? Yeah. That is absolutely true. Uh, and but the next game when they took on Brazil was extraordinary because I'd never seen I mean that was sort of heroic I could see the appeal of football there because you got the sense that they were down you would have thought almost any other country in the world would be out and they just kept going and there their 37 year old captain was not hobbling around like Ronaldo no he's he but he but he's 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 one of those guys who's who can he seems to be able to walk and play really, 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 really well. Think about Croatia, though, because it's like, you know, when, if you think about all the fuss that there was for Wales to being there with a very small population, just over three million, Croatia is between Wales and Scotland. And yet they got to a World Cup final. They've impressed the world yet again. Um, and I, th- I think there is something, if you go back, so when they were part of Yugoslavia, Two of the top four teams in the old Yugoslavia were from Croatia, Hadjik Split and Dynamo Zagreb. Um, so they've got that kind of tradition. But then there must be something else that's just really, really special about them as a sport, that they're so good at it when, you know, Wales getting there was seen like a miracle. So I tried this. You know, there's this new big release by OpenAI, which everybody's been downloading on their phones, which writes essays for you. Oh, my God. Have you seen the stuff they've done about this podcast? It's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. So we should get on to the stuff done about podcasts. <laughs> but I asked it, you know, why was Croatia doing so well in football? And the computer's response was very, very polished. It talked about its youth development, talked about um, its strong footballing tradition, <laughs> talked about its fan base, etc. And I was quite impressed, but a bit suspicious. So then I asked it, why was Spain so successful in football? And I got exactly the same answer. Ah. And I realised, basically, it's kind of classic Oxford and Cambridge bluffer, that computer. Yeah. 
it doesn't really have any information. It's kind of skimming along the surface. That's, it, so it didn't mention Dynamo, Zagreb and how to split it, No, no content at all, just very generic. Good youth development, good fan base. Yeah, excellent. Strong okay. footballing That's tradition. That, yeah, because yeah. yeah, they 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 did. I did see one that they did of could it present us doing a comedy sketch, and it was moderately funny. That was moderately funny. Yeah, yeah that it, was, it was. Yeah, the other thing I, I you know, because this is the rest is politics, not the rest is football. But I'll tell you a big political point is that the Croatia FA was recognised by America before FIFA, so they played a friendly between Croatia and the United States before Croatia was even recognised. And that was seen as like, a, it was quite a big political moment for them, both politically and in football terms. So I, I, I lived in Croatia. I, I worked there um, as a diplomat just at the time of the Kosovo War, so after the Bosnia War. The story of America's connection to Croatia was really important for Bosnia because America basically funded, so Croatia broke away from former Yugoslavia, early 90s, It lost bits of its territory to Serbia. It was trained by American contractors, stroke mercenaries, stroke CIA forces. Mm. It did this great advance at the end of 95 called the Storm, which involved some pretty extreme ethnic cleansing of all the Serbian populations. Tuđman, who was then their president, basically a proto-war criminal, Mm -hmm. There was a very sinister history going back to their connection with the Nazis during the Second World War and some very extreme expatriate groups that were sending in weapons. And Croatia remains, like some of those other states in former Yugoslavia, a state which has been doing very well economically, which has a very nice veneer on the top of lovely tourism and these wonderful islands around the Croatian Mm. coast like Korčula. But its politics remains pretty bizarre. The HDZ, this nationalist party, continues to have a grip on power. And it's a similar story, really, in, in Bosnia and in Serbia. But, of course, Croatia's in the EU, about to join the euro, when Bosnia and Serbia isn't. And the Bosnians particularly feel... Oh, and Bulgaria and Romania as well have been kept out, haven't they? So, so, so Croatia is kind of... It's way further down the track. On the, on the euro. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 So, that, no, but, but it's, it's, it is an extraordinary success story, though. It really is. I mean, I agree with you that the politics, I think, is still... Tough. I think that whole region, though, is that's the reason why I like the Balkans. I think so much is the, the, the politics is pretty brutal, uh, but it kind of they do get stuff done. I mean, the advance of Croatia as a an independent country since, as you say, the early nineties is pretty remarkable. To think that they're now going to be part of the Schengen zone, they're heading towards the Euro. It's pretty extraordinary. Really. It is. Well, I see we were criticised for saying extraordinary and incredibly too much. Shouldn't, shouldn't say that. Anymore, I wonder if no. that's been picked up by the, the, the bots. Yeah. yeah. Now, listen, shall we go to... Um, you're back in your homeland, the United Kingdom. I don't know if you've noticed while you've been away, Rory, but it's a bit of a mess. Uh, I, I've seen you've been tweeting about getting stuck on trains, and that wasn't strikes, was it? That was no, just hopelessness. No, yep. that was just an absolutely horrific day at Euston where trains were getting cancelled left, right and centre. I do think, I know, I, I saw at the weekend, I saw somebody on the Labour front bench who was saying that this sense that the country just isn't working, I think is going to form a very, very big part of how they move into the next election. They've, they've then got to show how it would work better under Labour. But I think the strikes, the, the strikes are fascinating because today we've got the rail strike. Your poor mum who's going to come by a train, yep. she's yep. going to have to fly. I'm going to Aberdeen tomorrow and I wanted to get the sleeper and yep. can't. So, you know, we're all going to have to do stuff we maybe don't want to do. Um, but then you, you look at the, the, the nurses' strike and the postal strike and the teacher's strike and the lecturer's strike. How, how, how do you feel about this? Because I guess you're divided, aren't you? Because 
I, I, maybe this is wrong, but my sense of you is that when you were in government with Tony Blair, you would have felt that you needed to take a relatively strong line on some of this. Since you've left government, I think you've tended to be more enthusiastic about union strikes, about Mick Lynch. I don't think you were a great friend of the RMT, particularly in the... No, and certainly not during the referendum either. So they were the first union to come out ridiculously for Brexit. I'd, I'd like to talk to Mick Lynch about that at some point. Uh, he was a bit rattled on the airwaves this morning, I thought. Very un-Mick Lynch. Um, I mean, he does that thing which I like to do. That was with Today Programme, Michelle Hussein. Yeah, and, and yeah. He, was, he, does that, he does that thing which I like to do with the media when you, you push it back onto them. But he did it so much. Why are you pursuing that line of questioning? Why are you just parroting the lines of the establishment yeah. and the Sun and the Mail and the yeah. Telegraph? Now, I do that to people, but I think if you, if you make that the main point of your interview, you start to think, mm. No, I think I'm more sympathetic because I think the, the gap... And I think the public generally are more sympathetic than they normally are. And I think it's because the divide and rule strategy, which I think the Tories are trying to do, is not working. I really got offended by Sunak... They're using this bogus figure about it's going to cost every family a thousand pounds a year, which is not, it's complicated, but it's not accurate. It's if you, even at the top end, you're talking about 600 quid. But he's got this, this language that they use about, you know, punishing ordinary hardworking families. As if these aren't ordinary hardworking families, and they're ordinary hardworking families, a lot of them, who are using food banks, who are having to try and get benefits to top up their salaries. And I think we're back to this point we've talked about before, that there's more poverty in this country then I think sometimes the political and media classes are prepared to acknowledge. I think the, the starting point, you're completely right. Uh, inflation is at least 10%, and people's wages are not remotely keeping up. And so everybody, private, public sector, is facing a real terms cut in their pay packages. They're going to be, people will be worse off, and they'll be even more worse off next year as the economy goes into recession. So I guess the question is, what is the... What, what do we make of the strikes? On the one hand, sympathise, inflation up, people struggling. On the other hand, I think just a couple of small things. One is that most people in Britain no longer work for the public sector. They work for the private sector. Many people working in businesses are not going to have anything like those pay rises. Although the pay, pay, private sector pay is rising faster than public sector pay. It is, but not at, not at the level of <clears> the <throat> nurse. I mean, nurses are asking at the moment for 19.8% pay rise. Some of them, yeah. That's, that's double inflation. Mm. And I noticed that West Streeting from Labour has been very, very mm. clear and hard about that. And he's raised something I'd love, love us to talk about a bit more, which is he's, I think, quite rightly, and I, I admire him, said, we can't just be talking about pay. We need to talk about reforming the NHS. Mm. And in the end, we need to talk about service delivery. He was very, very violently brutal about the GPs who just voted that they were only going to work nine to five. Mm. And I think that's interesting. And you presumably, as Labour, had to do some of those things in order to make yourselves electable. The BMA is um, a very, very powerful trade union. Uh, but because they're doctors, they're not necessarily seen in the same way as, you know, Mick Lynch, uh, working class guys. But they're a very powerful union. Uh, I think they... I, I, as you know, I regularly defend GPs and I defend my GP is absolutely brilliant and, and you know, our, our local surgery is, is fantastic. Um, but I think what West Streeting is doing is, it's back to this thing we've talked about before, Labour refusing to fall into traps that are being laid by the Tories. 
So the Tories want to create a situation where we're for the people trying to sort these strikes out, even though brackets, we're not going to sit down and talk to them in the way that they might want to talk to us. And meanwhile, Labour, because they've got their history of the trade unions, they are backing the strikers. Can I just very quickly on the they won't, <clears throat> won't sit down and talk? So I had to deal with prison officer strikes. Uh, and prison officer strikes are particularly a terrifying type of strike because yeah. when prison officers go on strike, the only people left to run a prison are the managers of the prison, mm. of whom there are very few. And within about 48 hours, it becomes almost impossible to run a prison. You can't get food through to prisoners. You certainly can't unlock them. And I remember when I went into those negotiations that I would sit down with the unions. I remember we sat down and press a manger around the corner from Parliament with the heads of the unions. And I thought I had a very good conversation. With Sorry, them. you had a... a, a, a Pay negotiation in Pret-a-Manger. In Pret-a-Manger, around the corner from the thing. Did you have a crowd? <laughs> oh, crowd. <laughs> so it was a really, it was a really, really good conversation. And uh, but I thought I'm making some progress here. We were making some promises on pr- what we could do to protect prison officers, legislation to make sure that if they were assaulted, there were proper punishments. About 45 minutes after our meeting the head of the prison officers' union went straight out to Parliament Green and told the press that the government was refusing to negotiate with them. Mm. And I had to go straight out an hour later saying, I have no idea what this guy is talking about. I literally was sitting with him having a cup of coffee an hour before. And there's definitely, I, I get the impression a game going on here because I noticed Mick Lynch at the moment is saying, yeah, okay, I'm guessing to talk to certain people, but I demand to talk to Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, personally. Mm. Mm. And the Prime Minister is refusing to talk to me. So it's clearly part of... Is it or is it not? I think it's part of the union playbook. Well, the the RCN did the same thing. The RCN basically said, this is now... You know, you're talking about the future of the health service, our ability to deliver care over Christmas period. Uh, We should sit down with the Prime Minister. And it's an obvious kind of tactic. Um, I do think there has been a sense... And the other very interesting interview this morning was with Mark Harper, the Transport Secretary, who was asked the same question six times about whether he had put on the table this idea of, of driver-only trains, and this was like a kind of red line for him. And he would not answer. And Justin Webb was getting more and more frustrated because yeah. it seems such it's a one-fact yeah. question. Yeah. And so I think there's obviously something going on there that maybe the RMT have been briefing about, that this is being driven by government, but the government want to pretend that it's not. And I think the government sort of this, constantly say... And this is no driver trains, right? Which is the thing that we've had in the tube. Because no, I think this is driver only. Driver only, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because, because definitely there's been this big problem in the London Underground. Oh, which yeah, is drive, that, which is driverless. Many, many other countries have tubes running without drivers, and the unions have blocked it again and again, claiming that it's unsafe. Yeah, yeah. So, that, look, but I, th- I think that look, we never had... Uh, situation. We, we, you know, we had industrial action, we had strikes to deal with when we were in government, but we never had a this kind of jigsaw that seems to be coming together. And I think when it does come together like that, I think the government does have to have a kind of overall strategy. Because um, at the moment, it's but they're saying that the well, this is all down to the independent pay review body. But the independent pay review, they don't negotiate; they make recommendations. And they make recommendations usually within quite a tight envelope that the yep. government has set for them. But I think for the trains now, there's not going to be an actual full railway service day between now and the second week of January. So, and then if you get the nurses on top of that, um, and you get the, I mean, the schools and universities are obviously going to shut for a while, but I mean, you know, get them coming back. Yeah. So I've been very struck by the fact that the, it seems to me, the, even parts of the right-wing media 
are not really getting stuck into the unions in the way that they might have done historically? Because I think they think their readers are quite sympathetic. Well, I think there's obviously been a big change in the place of unions in society and the way that they're viewed. We're we're not back in the 70s anymore. I, I think it's also that the arguments for government restraint on pay are quite complicated. And it's quite easy for the unions to outmaneuver them and make them seem cruel and uncaring. But let, let me try to, in my role as defender of the government, try to make that case. Why, so, do, you, why do you embrace this role <laughs> so readily? You know, is, you'll probably get booed tonight if you exactly. say that. Somebody's, somebody's, got to put, somebody's got to put the other, <laughs> other, other side of the story. Um, so I think public pay is £233 billion a year at the moment. And if the government puts up pay, I don't know how much it puts it up by, but they've already agreed to put it up by 3%. And then I think with teachers and other groups, they've agreed to put it up considerably more. Um, but obviously the maths are pretty stark. I mean, if you mm. went with the nurses, which is 20%, you know, you'd be looking at 50 billion. They're obviously not going to do that. And the problem is that whatever they do, 5%, 7%, it's not just one year, it's every year. Mm. And it's the pensions. And it's at a time when our deficit is already out of control. So the government has to think, do we or do we not want to add 10 or 15 billion pounds a year extra to our bill from now onwards? And that's a lot of money. I mean, mm-hmm. 10, 15 billion pounds pays for a very, very big chunk of your I mean, you can buy an awful lot of dud PPE for that and you, you can get a lot dud, of periods for that. You totally can, but you can also pay for a lot of police officers for that. You yeah. can pay for a lot of the education. But I do think this is part less. of the problem they're having. I think the waste, the waste that people have seen, the, the inequality that people see, I think every time, and, and I read a thing in the Sunday Times at the, the weekend, Michelle Moan is not even the big one. She's, she's getting all the coverage because she's in the House of Lords. And, but the, 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 they, they ran a full account of all these different companies that have made shed loads of money and provided dud PPE. And the people look at that and say, well, hold on a minute, you found the money for that government. Yeah. But, but the point is, I, I agree, but governments often, this government included, waste a lot of money. And you're right, the public often look and think, you must have an incredible amount of money back, down mm. back of the safe because you're spending all this money on all this other and stuff. And the other point, Rory. And this is what people are always saying about international aid. You know, if you can find 12 billion for international right. aid, surely you can spend this. But the fact is, we're talking about big money. We're talking about 10, 20 billion pounds a year more. And we're also talking about an anxiety, which is, you know, again, economists are going to go back and forth on that. But is it going to feed into inflation? Mm. How are people going to spend this money? Is this going to contribute to rising prices? And, and the, the challenge for Labour, and I think they're doing very well on this, is not falling into the trap of sounding like Mick Lynch and sounding like there is a magic money tree and that somehow if they came into government, they would just be awarding massive mm. inflation-busting pay rises and they'd be spending more money on everything. Because yeah. the truth is they, they can't do that and this government can't do it either. And that's why both parties going to the next election have got to have a proper strategy for growth. Um, and that's quite hard to get out there at the moment when the people are feeling so down about, about the state of the world. But the other point, Rory, which I don't think you can get away from in this context. So short, looking back recently, people look at, well, you found all that money for COVID, you found all that money for your Tory mates in the VIP fast lane, etc. But then you go back a decade to the, the first round of austerity and... I think people are feeling, well, we've heard this message before about you have to tighten your belt and it's all going to come good. And it hasn't for so many people. 100%. Well, the weirdness that we've forgotten is that, of course, there are 
two very different Tory parties that have existed since 2010. So there was the George Osborne, David Cameron austerity, which was all about trying to reduce the deficit, reduce the debt, cut public spending. Then you had Boris Johnson come in. And what people forget is that he spent money like water. Mm. This giving money out to his COVID friends was part of Boris Johnson saying, end of austerity, turn on the spending streams. He put a lot more money into the NHS. He put more money into education. He was putting more money into Northern England. There were huge announcements on all this stuff because he genuinely believed that austerity was a total waste of time and that there was no reason why Britain couldn't borrow and spend like Billiot. Is that what he believed? Very much. And that's why he did so for two years. He spent two years borrowing and spending <laughs> like Billiot. I've spent much of my life trying to work out well, what God Boris goodness Johnson knows if he believes anything at all. But yeah. he's, he was somebody who was naturally liked to be popular. And mm. an obvious way as a populist politician of being popular is just to borrow and spend a lot of money. Mm. So that Rishi Sunak is now going back to a story from 2010. But people forget that in the middle... There was two years of Boris turning on the spending. Mm. I do think Rishi Sunak listened to our interview with Julia Gillard, by the way. He's definitely taken her advice. Take, try and take the oxygen out of politics. Try and take politics. Don't be on the news the whole time. He's definitely very, very low profile. And do you think, do you think that was good advice from her? Would you have given him that advice? I think, I think for him, yeah. I think it's not a bad thing. That he, and he's, he's, he's not... It's also interesting. He's, he's, apparently, he doesn't think they should do this kind of morning media round. We've talked about this before. But I bumped into a couple of people from the Today programme the other day who were gagging for that to happen, I think, because they find these morning round interviews with ministers just a complete and total waste of time as well. Now, should we take a break and come back to the state of the world in its many forms? Let's do that. This episode of The Rest is Politics is sponsored by The New European. Now, Alistair, do you know what a bookazine is? A bookazine? I do know what a bookazine is. Oh, rubbish. It's a book, but it's kind of got the feel of a magazine. Okay, because that is what the New Europeans are about to produce. They're going to take 100 of their best covers, binding them into a book. Now, what's your favourite New European cover? Oh, there have been some great front covers, but I think if I could only have one, there was one when Johnson was Prime Minister, and the headline was, it's all there for, you know, Johnson in the middle, and you just had these hands kind of pointing out everywhere, and it just captured absolutely brilliantly how it's always somebody else's fault but his. The New European have got a special offer for trip listeners. You can get a digital subscription for a pound a week or both print and digital for two pounds a week. I think we should give every new subscriber a free copy of this bookazine on top of the bargain subscription. No. Really? Yeah. So you heard it here first. Take out a subscription between now and Christmas and Alistair Campbell is going to guarantee that you get a free book of their brilliant covers worth £15 thrown in. Yeah, I'm going to guarantee that. Sign up at www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash trip. So welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And we're, we're still sitting here in the Albert Hall, which is still pretty surprising. I'm, I'm actually going slightly blind, staring at these, you know, know the spotlights got, we, we you have these, on, we're, we're on in mirrors. A, we're in a dressing room. I wonder if the cheeky chappies ever been in here, Roy. I definitely. I was looking been. at all the photographs on the wall, and the Albert Hall basically tells the entire story of British history in this bizarre way. There's, there's a product out there, you can see a big photograph which they were obviously very proud of when they redecorated in the 80s, which they might be less proud of today, which is the Albert Hall was the scene of the annual production of Hiawatha from 1923 to 1939, only interrupted by the general strike, as we were just talking about, but played with a real 
Indian chief and a headdress, you know, all of a sudden you're thinking, whoa, 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 I'm not sure we're going to be doing that anymore. Yeah. Now, listen, we've both been in France in the last, uh, you, you've been there last night, I was there uh, a few days ago, and I was there the day that the launch of the Citizens' Assembly on fin de vie, end of life, um, and I'd for- completely forgotten this, that there was a Citizens' Assembly in the Commons about uh, the environment, and it kind of went nowhere because there was no political oomph behind it. Whereas Macron, Elizabeth Bourne, the Prime Minister, are really behind this. But it's a Can, it's a can I just tell people what is, roughly what yeah. a Citizens' Assembly is? So there are different versions of it, but the, the, the biggest, best example of it to begin with was in Ireland, where they did a Citizens' Assembly around abortion, which, mm. of course, in the Republic of Ireland, incredibly controversial issue. But by getting what's really like a jury, you randomly select citizens, put them in a room, representative sample of ordinary people, and then you have experts on the subject, brief people over a few days on all the different details. And the amazing thing is that what they found with Ireland on abortion is that instead of emerging with everybody divided into yes and no, they begin to get into how Mm. about 28 days, what Mm. happens if you're raped? Mm. And they ended up with a proposal which then became Irish law. And I wanted to see the same on Brexit because I believe that actually the only way through Brexit was to put Brexiteers and Remainers in a room. And I think they would have ended up at a sort of customs union single market option if they'd been given a chance to do that. Anyway, back to you. and, and well, So, so that's yeah. exactly what they've done. They, they, they've got 173 people aged between 18 and 87, according to a, a kind of demographic. But then all the people within that, they're drawn by lots. They're going to spend nine weekends together with experts, as you say, with psychological support, with fact checkers. And they're not being asked to they're not being asked to produce a policy, but they might produce a policy. They're just being asked to address all the issues. And people can follow it all live on stream. You can you can see what's going on. And I think it what's what's fascinating about it is Macron he hates the word euthanasia, understandably. Um, but that's kind of where the debate started. It's now into the they're calling it fin de vie. As I guess assisted suicide is where it's going to going to end up. But it's, it's, it's got that particular leadership. The Speaker of the National Assembly is going to be present, for the, was present for the first weekend. So it's really kind of, it's, it's literally saying, right, we're the politicians, we want this debate to take place, and, and we're giving you this forum within which to do it. And, and it's happening at a time when um, I asked the, the, the campaigns here. Here, so it's, there's movement in Scotland. There's a there's a introduction of a assisted dying for terminally terminally ill adults and bill in the Scottish just Parliament. Just very quickly on that, your friend Andrew Mitchell, who's now the development minister, is a big big champion of assisted dying and always wanted us to talk about it on this podcast. So okay, he'll be grateful. Ditto Charlie Charlie Faulkner on the Pretty same good. thing. Yep. Eleven states in the US, all six states in Australia. New Zealand nationwide, Canada nationwide, Colombia nationwide, and of course famous, several European fa- countries. Famously Switzerland. In my constituency, I remember an old lady saying to me, uh, she didn't need to pay to, to go to Switzerland to die. She just had to check herself into the Cumberland Infirmary. <laughs> no, you can't say that. You can't say that, Roy. No, I definitely can say that. That was in the height of our superbug disaster. Oh, my was God. a lovely kind of vision that all she had to do was save a bit of money by going to hospital. But it's definitely, as a debate, it's moving. And I, and I sort of feel we're not having it here at all. I mean, you're right yeah, that there's, been, yeah, there, there's yeah. lots of pressure for it. Yeah. But I don't hear much from the government. No, we, we don't hear much about it. But I also love the idea of citizens' assemblies. I know that a lot of my friends think I'm mad because they think that, they think that I'm romantic about the public. My view is that actually, generally, the public sat down in that way, come up with a much better answer than politicians because mm. they're not party-pre. They don't have any 
political interests. And these questions are questions which are, they're not specialist questions, questions around abortion or end of life, or even I think ultimately Brexit are definitely questions which can be explained, which people have a right to have a view on, and where people can work their way through towards a compromise. One of the lovely things about it is that you tend to, for someone like me who's a horrible centrist, you tend to end up with a pretty centrist solution because mm. people compromise. Mm. Now, I, uh, when you talked about a citizen assembly on Brexit being Remainers and Leavers, you, you meant not politicians. Exactly. It was going to be, I, my idea was 300 people selected at random from the entire country, demographically representative, put in a room, weekend after weekend, with experts talking through the issues, coming up with a proposal. Well, oh, but remember, Roy, we'd had enough of experts by then. <laughs> Mr. Gove said no luck, more But the experts. lucky thing is they, they and I, actually I remember when I proposed it, it really annoyed my colleagues in Parliament. They kept saying, we already have a Citizens' Assembly. It's, it's called Parliament. You've got it, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then when I went up against uh, Dominic Raab in the leadership debate, he kept, he'd obviously done a focus group where he decided that that the thing to say was, Rory Stewart is proposing Venezuela. This guy is Maduro with his citizens' assemblies. They kind of felt it was like I was going on a Cuban model. But I think this is the future. And I think our population's never been so educated, never been so well-traveled. And people are completely fed up with just vesting these decisions in Parliament. And mm. I think a representative citizens' assembly is a really good way of addressing our Well, you're, And you're right as well that the Brexit debate became so polarised. The idea of putting, dare I say, people like me in a room with people like Nigel Farage and come up with a solution. I mean, <laughs> it would not happen without violence, would it? That's the, and it, 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 <laughs> Luckily, though, it wouldn't be you and Nigel Farage. It would be 300 more people who are less politicised. And I think that's where yeah. we would have ended up. With yeah, 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 yeah. Well, at the moment, every eight days, a British citizen travels to Switzerland to be helped to die. Wow. It's a uh, lot of people. It's quite a lot yeah, of people, isn't it? Quite a lot of people. Yeah. So... And of course, it's very difficult to comment on because on the one hand, you can get into debates about how it goes wrong. And of course, it goes wrong or could go wrong if the elderly feel that they're under pressure from their relatives. Yeah. And of course, dementia is adding an, another yeah. layer of Yeah. And, and you, you don't... You know, I've, I definitely have had relatives and godparents. I remember saying to me, oh, I'm just a burden. I should probably get out of the way. I should probably... And you can imagine, maybe psychologically, how that could contribute to this. But on the other hand, very difficult to comment on unless you've had a relative who's been through it. I mean, I think one of the things we've picked up on Twitter is that if you've actually had a family member in that extreme situation, uh, you feel that nobody really should be judging this who hasn't had that direct experience. Mm -hmm. When when I was in Paris, I I picked up a a newspaper. There was an interview with a guy called Theo Boer, and he was part of the Dutch Inquiry and the, the Committee of Control in charge of um, uh, assisted dying there. And they, he, he, he said that they've had a quadruple of cases since it brought in. And he's become, he was an absolute advocate for it. He's become less certain uh, because he's, he, he thinks that the criteria are, are kind of spreading yeah. and widening. But uh, anyway, I think, it's, I think it's a great way for the, to have the debate. I agree with you about that. And I, th- I think it is moving. And of course, France is a Catholic country still, yep. in the main. Which is why it's important, because the sanctity of life. Absolutely. The, the, amazing, the other thing I picked up yep. while I was over there is that Macron refers to the Pope as tu. Ah, he doesn't vous voyez the Pope. Il vous, il vous voit pas le pape. Very interesting. <laughs> Gosh, very interesting. Um, Isn't it? So he's, he's got a, clearly got a very yeah, familiar so, 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 friendship uh, with I'm, le pape. I was having a so final thing, I was having a cup of tea in, in Jordan two days ago and an Iranian-British couple came up to me 
and gave me a real row, justifiable, I think now, for the lack of focus that we've put recently on what's happening in Iran, and particularly not you and me being in trouble, but the British government. Mm. And they feel that the... So just to remind everybody, going back in time, um, over the last 80 days, there have been a series of very, very brave demonstrations. And unusually, it's a revolutionary movement not run in Iran by intellectuals. It's run by sports people. It's run by women. Women are increasingly not wearing headscarves. There's amazing acts of people knocking turbans off Shia clerics in the streets. And we're in a situation in which many thousands of people have now been arrested, maybe as many as 15,000, probably 400 have been killed. The Iranian regime is desperate. Hang on. Khamenei, who's the supreme leader, believes that the lesson of the Iranian revolution in 79 and the lesson of 89 to 91 in Russia and the lesson of the Arab Spring in 2011 is that you mustn't give an inch because if you give an inch, you're finished. So he's trying to really hold on hard. But The criticism is that whereas the Germans and the Canadians and many others have spoken out strongly in favor of the protesters and have sanctioned the Revolutionary Guard, Britain is so far holding off from doing it. And I was reminded of that because you've just done this interview with with Mrs. Litvinenko, who was very critical of successive governments, Tony Blair, William Hague and the Foreign Office, for their failure to stand up for Litvinenko against Russia. And there's something in the Foreign Office, I think, which can be or feels from a distance as though it can be a bit overly cautious about mm. confronting regimes and calling them out. I mean, the first, just on Marina Imlienko, who, by the way, was fantastic. I really, really enjoyed talking to her. Um, her criticism of us in the early days was that we we initially didn't give asylum to Litvinenko because she felt we were a bit too close to to Putin or trying to get a bit closer to Putin. And then with Haig and Theresa May, it was about lack of access to, to papers and such like. But what's happening in Iran is, I mean, two 23-year-olds have been executed this week. Uh, one charged with em- enmity against God, the other one with corruption on earth. Uh, 488 now killed, 18,259 defeated since the treatment of Masa Amini, which set the whole thing the whole thing off. And I mean, I think you're right. I think we're back to this thing about the, the normalisation of really bad stuff very, very quickly. And I sent you this morning, the, J- James Cleverley, the Foreign Secretary, made his so-called big foreign policy speech today. I mean, it is so vacuous, it's almost mind-blowing. It was billed as this is going to be the sort of foreign policy post-Brexit. And I honestly, I, I've read it twice now, and I can't, I can't even work out what he's trying to say. I think it's been produced by one of those chat box one of the open, one you, of the open ai things yeah but 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 yeah. i do think you're right about iran you're absolutely right and there is more that we could do and we're not doing it and it's back to this thing about once the media turns away from it the the government just thinks oh well, we don't need to bother about it j- j- just to, to to finish there's been this very interesting prisoner swap where Brittany griner who's a, a u.s sportswoman a well-known u.s sportswoman who was detained in russia and sentenced for um, having some cannabis in a vape, was swapped for Victor Bout. And Victor Bout is probably the most notorious international arms dealer in the world, who was, the Americans were chasing from 9-11 onwards, and they finally got him in a sting operation in Thailand in 2008. It was one of their great kind of CIA triumphs. And it's extraordinary that you can release... um, you know, one of the most wanted men in the world in exchange for a, a basketball player who had a bit of cannabis in her vape. And the, I mean, the, ju- the judgments that will have gone on with that. And it was in, it, it was interesting how Joe Biden 
was very, very much wanted to be seen to be part of the whole thing. Uh, he was with Brittany Griner's partner as it was happening, met her, met her when she got back to the States. So that was obviously a big decision that had been taken by government. We are going to do this. And it's very, it's quite, it's very strongly American too, isn't it? Because it actually happened in Afghanistan too. Peter Juvenal, who was a very uh, distinguished her. I mustn't mm. use that word. Oh, you're allowed, no, you're allowed yeah, to be okay. there. Anyway, Peter Juvenal was an amazing cameraman, often with the BBC, did I think something like 90 trips to Afghanistan during the jihad, um, was arrested by the Taliban mm. and found himself in jail with a lot of people, including Americans. And of course, Biden negotiated to get the Americans out. And the British didn't get Peter Juvenal out for many, many weeks afterwards. And Peter's family was understandably very, very angry. But it goes all the way back to the Iranian hostage situation. It goes back to the release of prisoners of war in Vietnam. American politicians become very, very identified with this question of getting their citizens home, almost more than anyone else. Yeah, but all, I mean, you do have um, regimes and terrorist organisations that make money through hostage-taking. Now, we have an absolute very, very hard line that we don't pay, um, but it doesn't mean that all sorts of negotiations don't go on. I don't remember dealing with a, a direct hostage thing in a prisoner swap like this, but I do remember the period of... I think th we talked last week about decommissioning with Cyril Ramaphosa and uh, the Finland Prime Minister Atasari when they were doing the decommissioning of RA, RA weapons. But the other issue that was just incredibly difficult and incredibly compl complicated was prisoner release, because... Which prisoners were these? Well, well the, the, both sides, right. you know, who, who were being released as part of the agreement. Um, and some of these people who'd done very bad things. Oh, God, yeah. And also some of these things, people who'd done very bad things to each other. Right. And some of them who'd done bad things to people who were in the room when we were negotiating. Right. And so, but the thing about, you know, if you say, right, notorious global arms dealer... Yes, <laughs> who's a, a pal of Putin's yeah. against basketball player, yeah, yeah. you don't feel in the kind of geostrategic <laughs> that it's... Uh, but you're having to make those calculations. How many unionists on life sentences for how many IRA supporters on life sentences? You, you, you're making judgments. And also, who feels more strongly about and, and in both, when they should both get cases, out. these were people who'd killed people, oh, both yeah. on the Republican side and Absolutely. the Indian side. And who, and who, and who got out early. Proper convicted terrorists. Absolutely, who got, who got out early. What's really interesting, though, I, I, I think, listen, I could be wrong about this, we'd have to check, but I'm pretty sure hardly any of them were back in jail anytime soon afterwards. Right. So it did kind of work in terms of, quotes, keeping the peace. not referring. Um, but it's a very, it's a, you know, these are, I guess these are questions where morality collides with politics. Um, so Victor Vought was a really, really big figure when I first joined the Foreign Office, and he's like a glimpse of a world which, thank goodness, has faded a little bit. But it, anybody wants to know about that universe, you've just got to read Frederick Forsyth's 1970s novel, The Dogs of War, which basically describes in detail how people like Victor Vought were still operating in the 90s. Mm. So the story is absolutely extraordinary. The guy was a almost certainly a colonel in the GRU, so the Russian military intelligence. He speaks an extraordinary number of languages, speaks fluent Farsi, Khosa, Zulu, Arabic. He got hold of some dodgy Antonov aeroplanes as the Soviet Union collapsed, set himself up in a, a sort of African air freight business, started off shipping flowers from South Africa into Dubai, so he'd buy flowers for $2, sell them for $100, 
Then he got onto the frozen chicken business. So he'd buy frozen chickens for $2 in South Africa, fly them up to Nigeria. While still being with the GRU? It, well, this is the question, right? Uh, to what extent had he left them, to what extent hadn't he? But he claimed to be totally independent. Started flying frozen chickens up to Nigeria, shipping around uh, UN peacekeepers. And then began to become very good friends with Mobutu, mm-hmm. became very good friends with Massoud in Afghanistan. And quite quickly went from gladioli to helicopter gunships. Mm-hmm. And Where I, were the Antonovs at this point? <laughs> the Antonovs, <laughs> they got. Then expanded to more and more Antonovs. And he was operating in those days. The United Arab Emirates was the perfect place to operate out of because there were free ports there. He then shifted on to operating out of Ukraine. So this is the other thing we forget about with Ukraine now. Ukraine now is the great hero of the West and the great opponent of Russia. Ukraine in those days, late 90s, early 2000s, was the most corrupt arms mart in the world because mm. when the Soviet Union had left, they'd left behind $40 billion worth of armaments, all of which then disappeared over the next five, six years. And the president of Ukraine was recorded in a tape in his office doing a deal selling to Saddam Hussein surface-to-air missiles, hundred millions of dollars worth of surface-to-air missiles. The journalist who reported on it, this is Ukraine, was found two months later headless in a bath of acid on the edge of a farm just outside mm. Kiev. And all of this is Viktor Valtzwell. By the end of his time, he was running planes to Liberia, Sierra Leone, DRC. Uh, He was getting involved in Afghanistan. He was in trouble for what he was supposed to be doing for North Koreans. And And the whole thing happening with this kind of big mustachioed guy who was obviously protected, or he would be dead by now, by the Putin regime. Well, listen, Putin must be saying this has been a really good trade. Yeah, you, you to get him back for a for a wrestling a basketball, basketball player, player a trivial who had a bit of yeah. vaping weed. So did you? So I, I don't think I don't remember being involved in hostage stuff. So were my, you in in my earlier life before I be, when I was a civil servant before I became a minister? Yes, and those were British hostages. I think in those that case taken in Kashmir. And we would have very, very detailed meetings down in an underground cellar. Well, not Pretamondre. Not Pretamondre. <laughs> uh, and they were very intense. You were working with our special forces. You were working with police liaison. You were trying to get information on the ground on where these people were located. You were trying to work out if there were any options there to extract. There were other people trying to negotiate with the local governments. And, of course, you had at the other end the families mm. who often felt... And this is why... On the one hand, I'm very close to Peter Juvenal and his family, and I really feel their anger. But I also feel some sympathy for the British diplomats because I actually am confident that they would have been working very, very hard to try to get them back. But with limits, and with London, limits with to limits. what they're allowed to do, often with governments and regimes that are allowed to do an awful lot more. 100%. Mm. And politicians who are a bit nervous. Yeah. And regimes who are asking for huge amounts of money that we're not prepared to hand over. Mm. Meanwhile, the families are screaming and want them home. Mm. Well, tonight on the stage of the Albert Hall, Rory, I'm going to take you hostage until you admit that austerity was a disaster and the, the audience is not going to let you go out and until that's happened. And the Burnley Football Club is the greatest team that's ever existed. No, because that would just be a lie. You don't believe <laughs> <laughs> Even though we did have a great win at the weekend. So, so well, well, I guess that's it. I mean, the only thing to, to finish on then is, um, what's your prediction for the results? Given that the results be out before this comes out. Oh, I think... I think it's a chance of a repeat of the last final, France-Croatia. I think I just, I think France are going to win it, the right. whole thing. I do. You think? I think pretty- France. I think France, average France on an off day, were actually the better team than England, who were very very strong. 
um, and all the English people in the room are shaking their heads and the Frenchman in the room is waving his arms about and saying what a great pundit I am. No, I think, I think France will win the whole thing. Very good. Well, yeah. we'll find out. Thank you. Thank you.